0: I'm happy and sad, compassionate and bad. Can't sleep at night, can't do anything right. I want to be alone, but not on my own. I'm in love, but I hate. I'm a burden on the state. These are the words of decorated Falklands veteran Tony McNally, captured in his anthology of trauma poetry Screaming in Silence. Written decades after the war ended and after his PTSD. Post traumatic stress disorder had been diagnosed. It's a picture that the medical world now recognises occurred in thousands of veterans who fought in the wars of the 20th and 21st centuries. But surely this is not a unique phenomenon of recent history. How can we find out whether such trauma existed in the veterans of the British Civil Wars? Obviously, Getting direct evidence of mental trauma during such a historic conflict is extremely difficult. But we can glimpse the responses of people living in Britain at the time from the evidence in the Civil Wars Petitions Project, which has analysed more than 4,000 petitions from ordinary men and women, veterans and non-combatants, who were pleading for state assistance after the wars had ended. In this programme... The project director, Dr. Ismini Pells, a departmental lecturer in local and social history at the University of Oxford, tells publisher Mike Gibbs what this research reveals about the mental as well as physical traumas of veterans 350 years ago.
1: Ismini, thanks very much indeed for joining us for this discussion about the psychological and psychiatric effects of the Civil War on the combatants and non-combatants who were involved in the British Civil Wars of the 17th century. When we generally think about the effects on individuals such as these, we think about physical wounds and physical disability. But you've explored the psychological consequences of these conflicts. Why and what brought you to such a research focus?
2: I think a lot of it was to do with the timing of current events. When I was doing my graduate studies, it was in the late noughties and early 2010s when there were lots of news reports of soldiers who'd come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they were you know, struggling with conditions such as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was surprising still how even in this day and age there was so much stigma surrounding it and they were having difficulty accessing help and getting the right treatment that they needed. And there was a massive public outcry about this. And one of the objections, if you like, was raised against this was somehow that psychological consequences of conflict was somehow a new thing that, you know, soldiers in the past, they were much tougher and they didn't have problems with PTSD and psychological issues. And somehow, you know, people today were weak. And that just didn't chime with what I was reading about in my own research and what people researching in other time periods were finding. And so it was something I wanted to look into more deeply and see if this was an issue in the civil wars. And um, was it? Yes, certainly I think so. I mean, I think from looking at the evidence, it is highly likely that exposure to conflict in the civil wars produce some form of lasting psychological responses in some cases, And we certainly seem to have several cases where individuals were described either by themselves or by others as having undergone behavioural changes as a result of their experiences in the civil wars. And contemporaries considered these extreme or unusual, suggesting that there was something going on there. And of course, I think it's important to remember that the circumstances and the environment of combat can cause, you know, quite complex and unique responses. And some of these might be very different to modern experiences of psychological trauma. But I think this is exactly where historical studies can be quite useful in helping us understand psychological trauma in the present better, so many modern psychologists have criticised the diagnostic criteria and the treatment models that are used in trauma frameworks and practices today, and they say that these are based on on a Western vision of the world that may not be applicable in all cultures and in all parts of the globe. And I think that one thing that historical studies can help is help highlight the ways in which armed conflict can produce different responses in different contexts and different cultures. It's been
1: to document these experiences and capture these experiences from all those centuries ago in the British Civil Wars must be difficult. Do you have sources that will capture these sort of psychological impacts
2: Yeah, we do. A lot of our sources come from either, you know, the usual types of sources, such as memoirs or letters or newsbooks of the time. And sometimes we have administrative records of the care that was provided to these people. But I think one of the best sources for looking at the psychological impacts of the Civil War, it comes from the Civil War Petitions Project. Now, I, I know this is something that will have been explored in some of the other episodes in this series. But just to recap, this was a scheme that was made available during the Civil War, whereby wounded soldiers and those who were widowed or orphaned could claim a pension from the state as a result of their injuries or bereavement. Now, obviously, a lot of these cases involved physical wounds, but some of the soldiers who were claiming pensions actually seemed to be suffering from what looked like psychological wounds as well. And what's nice about these sources is they are based on the petitions that come from the applications for pensions. And here we have the voice of the soldier themselves speaking. I mean, obviously their petition is written with a scribe to help them, but you can see their testimony shining through. So it's the soldiers themselves that are speaking.
1: And when you read those petitions, can you hear voices that are very similar to the veterans' Of today,
2: I suppose the essence of it. Often you feel you have a sense of what that soldier is going through, but often the language they use is very different and you have to be quite careful as to how language has changed over time. So, to give you a couple of examples, one of the words that particularly interests me is the word grief. Now, there are a lot of cases where soldiers mention that they are suffering because of their grief. Now, to you or I, grief is obviously something that often happens when you lose something, bereavement, that sort of thing. And yes, of course, that is something to be taken seriously, but often we don't consider it as a serious condition as such. Whilst in the 17th century, the word grief covered a much broader spectrum than it does today. And this included quite quite serious conditions that we might today associate with Perhaps trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it's difficult sometimes when the soldiers are, are talking, they say, you know, they're suffering with grief. Well, do they have grief as we understand it today? Or is it something much more serious? Is there an objective disorder behind that word? We don't know. And another very good example of how language has changed is the word crazy. Now, originally, crazy meant flawed or cracked. We use it in the same context today when we we talk about crazy paving. But during the 17th century, it was often used to refer, therefore, to physical frailty. But about this time... The understanding of the word crazy as we understand it today, you know, where we might associate it with more psychological conditions, was just coming into play. So often when people in the 17th century used the word crazy, they're referring to both physical and psychological conditions at the same time. So some soldiers who say they're feeling crazy... We don't know if they mean they're just feeling physically frail or whether they're suffering from some sort of mental distress as well. So it's quite difficult sometimes to get beneath the language.
1: Thinking specifically about the British Civil War, was there anything about the way they were fought, the way the conflict was conducted, or the time it took that made it a particularly stressful environment for the combatants and also for the non-combatants.
2: Yes, I think so. So I think the thing about the Civil War is often when we think about the Civil War, we often think about the big battles such as Naseby or Master Moor. But actually, the Civil War was a war that was dominated by skirmishing, by long-drawn-out sieges, lots of very persistent, low-level, low-intensity warfare. And... Modern studies have suggested that this type of warfare can actually have quite a severe impact on mental health because it just chips away at the combatants. And so a lot of the veterans, they remember things like extremes of temperature, long hours on duty, lots of harsh living conditions. And this seems to have worn them down over time and yet, in the midst of this low intensity warfare, you've got this ever present sense of danger. You don't know where, you know, your next skirmish is going to come from or when an attack is going to happen, when a defending garrison might sally out of the town and come and attack your position. And so, this can take quite a toil on soldiers' health. And we certainly seem to have some examples from the petitions where this seems to have worn some soldiers down, this low-intensity warfare. And one such example of this is from a Scottish petitioner called Andrew Abernathy, who was a captain in the Scottish army who was supporting Parliament in 1644. I think one of the interesting things about this petition is the way in which Abernathy seems to claim that he's living in a state of hyper arousal, he's in constant fear of being taken prisoner again, and this, more than anything else, is just wearing him down.
3: To the Honourable Governor of Nottingham Town and Castle and the Honourable Committee of Parliament resident at Clare House in Nottingham, The humble petition of Mr Andrew Abernathy, sometime a captain in the Scottish army and now with Captain Thomas Wright. Whereas your honour's petitioner came out of his own country into this kingdom with the rest of the Scottish army in good apparel and well accommodated and marched with them to Hereford where your petitioner was taken prisoner and stripped of his money and clothes. And there remained until his countrymen were marched back again then got his liberty and came to this town. And dared go no further, being fearful of being taken prisoner again, has remained in this garrison with Captain Thomas Wright by the space of three months and done faithful service as the Honourable Governor and all the foot captains in Nottingham well know and receiving no pay all this time. And now your petitioner's countrymen coming again into this county, and your petitioner wanting clothes and other necessities against winter, is much discontented and grieved. Wherefore, your petitioner most humbly prays your honours to be pleased, to take his distressed condition and poor estate into your honour's grave considerations, and to grant your petitioner some means for accommodation fitting for one of his degree, and as duty binds him, he shall daily pray for your much increase of honours.
1: mainly today we know the impact of experiences on the battlefield are felt for years and even decades afterwards. What evidence is there in your research that these long-term effects were seen in the British civil wars?
2: Yes, that's a really good point. I think that it's important to distinguish between perhaps some of the more subjective distress we see happening at the time with people like Andrew Abernathy and the more longer term effects, which might be more indicative of an objective disorder. And so we do have examples of the latter. And one of these comes from a man called Thomas Goad. Now, Thomas Goad was a chaplain in the Royalist Army at the Battle of Master Moor. And the Battle of Moor was one of the biggest of the civil wars and one of the most dramatic in terms of loss of life and consequences for the king's cause. And this seems to have had a serious impact on the mental health of Thomas Goad. And after the battle, he's forced to seek shelter from a friend who cares for him for many years afterwards. Now, because of the legislation at the time, Goad or his friend couldn't apply for a pension to help him. So it's not until 1660, 16 years after the battle, that Thomas Goad's friend is able to apply for some financial help to assist him in caring for him. And it's quite clear from his petition that Goad is still struggling all these years afterwards.
4: Thomas Goad, being chaplain to a regiment in the army of his late Royal Majesty, was present at the hesham Moor fight and upon that unfortunate defeat came to your petitioner's house in Doncaster, where, through grief upon apprehension of that miscarriage, he suddenly fell sick and into distraction, in which miserable condition he has continued to this day. Wherefore, your petitioner must humbly beseech your good lordship to take into your lordship's serious and pious thoughts the sad distress of the said God, and the cause that probably brought him to it, and to take such order therein, that your petitioner, or some other appointed by your lordship, may for his use be interested to procure the said care to be supplied, allowing therefore thirty pounds by the year, or what more your lordship shall think fit to direct.'
2: So we can see from Thomas Goad that the impact of the civil wars are continuing for many decades after the conflict has ended and continuing to have an impact on the mental health of those who lived through them.
1: I guess when you contrast the British civil wars with Iraq or Afghanistan for combatants from Britain or the United States... One of the big differences was that the British Civil Wars were being fought literally in people's backyards. What consequences did that have both on competence and non-competence because they must have been involved?
2: Yes, I suppose one of the most defining characteristics of a civil war, if you like, is the fact that it's fought between rival groups of fellow countrymen in their own backyard, in their own country. And so, in this circumstance, it's difficult for civilians not to become caught up in the fighting. And I think perhaps one of the most distressing examples we have of civilians who become caught up in the fighting comes from a man called William Summer. Now, William Summer was a tailor who lived in Leicester at the time of the Royalist assault on the town in 1645. And he lived through the events of the assault. And what his petition makes clear is it doesn't just have an impact on himself, but also his family, and in particular his wife, as we can hear here.
3: To the right worshipful the mayor, the worshipful the alderman, his brethren, and the rest of this society. The humble petition of William Summer, Taylor. That whereas your poor petitioner, Before the taking of the town, for the better securing thereof, had his house pulled down, it being his inheritance, and all his fruit trees cut down to his great loss, and, at the taking of the town by the enemy, had his son slain, and most of goods plundered, with the fright whereof your petitioner's wife has been distracted ever since, and that your petitioner, endeavouring to provide for himself and family, having five children, used his trade as a tailor. Now so it is that one John Stafford, master or steward of the company of tailors, has lately arrested your poor petitioner and commenced a suit in the town court, your petitioner being no free man, and also diverse others of the said company, do daily threaten your petitioner to commence their several accounts upon the same grounds, which will be, if not prevented, Your petitioner's utter undoing. Your petitioner therefore humbly entreats this worshipful company in respect of his great charge, losses and poverty, that your petitioner may be admitted a freeman of this corporation to work as a botcher, that so he may be the better able to maintain himself, wife and family and keep himself from the just exception and trouble of the said company of tailors, which are so violent against your poor petitioner.
2: It rather sounds like the effects of the assault with all the plunder and the loss of their son had a real impact on Summer's wife, as he says she's been distracted ever since.
1: And it's not only the effect of PTSD on the combatant, but also on his or her partner and family. What evidence is there from the British Civil Wars of that
2: Yes, we have a number of petitions from wives or mothers who are petitioning on behalf of either their husband or their son who, again, appears to be suffering from some sort of psychological distress and they are having to care for them. So clearly it's having an impact on the lives of their wives and other family members who are doing most of the caring for them. So one interesting example comes from Elizabeth Bradley Now, her husband, Edward, had been in receipt of a maimed soldier's pension since around about 1667. And at the time he starts receiving his pension, we don't really have any indication that he's suffering from any form of mental distress. He was wounded. He'd had quite a hard war. He had been wounded several times. He'd been imprisoned. And he'd spent a lot of his money in the royalist cause on his own company. It's not until 1681 that Elizabeth is forced to petition on her husband's behalf. Now, she's worried about him not just because of his physical state, but it seems that he's starting to suffer from some sort of mental distress as well. Now, Elizabeth explains
5: this in her own words. To the right worshipful, the justices of the peace sit in at Wakefield that your petitioner's husband is aged and fallen into a sad condition by reason of his former hurts in his majesty's late service and is much troubled in that he should be so slighted for his great losses and imprisonments that he suffered in the late rebellious war, never changing his principles, that we dare not venture him to go abroad, but is forced to have one to look after him. He escaped us and went to Wakefield, likely have been lost when going over a bridge, and I cannot follow anything for looking after him. And I am not able to do it, my charge is so great. And to let it be known trouble to me, that my condition should be known to any but your worships. I have been lame a while myself, and had my breast cut off which has disenabled me much to do that what formerly I had done for him, or else I would not be so troublesome to your worships. I cannot endure to let my condition be known to any but yourselves. My humble desire is that you would be pleased to grant him some quarterly or monthly pension, for and towards his maintenance whilst he lives. From the head constable's assessment, which I believe it will not be long, in his condition. I think the interesting thing about
2: Elizabeth's petition is it's not so much the events of the wars that seem to have had an impact on Edward's mental health, it's what's happened afterwards. It's the fall in social standing and the lack of financial income that he has as a result of having spent all his money in the war that seems to be having the most effect rather than what happened during the war itself.
1: So far, we've talked about individuals or families who are caring for a veteran or a non-combatant who's been affected. What was the state offering by way of mental health care?
2: Well, as well as the pensions that I've mentioned, one of the biggest innovations that came out of the civil wars was the establishment of permanent military hospitals. Now, these were dedicated military facilities that were established in London at the Savoy and Ely House. Now, they were only available to Parliament soldiers, I have to say, but it was somewhere that treated not only physical injuries, but also, in some instances, we have examples of soldiers being admitted there who seemed to be suffering from some sort of psychological disorder. For example, in 1655, we have two soldiers who were serving in Scotland whose names were Edward Hodgson and Thomas King, and they were admitted to the hospital at Ely House. Edward Hodgson was described as a very sad object, deprived of his understanding and totally helpless. Whilst Thomas King was noted as suffering from a lameness wherewith he is troubled in his head. Now, to me, this sounds like that's some sort of psychological disorder happening. And they were sent south to London at the public expense, which was not inconsiderable, I have to say. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of treatment was available to them. But we do know from the hospital records that the hospitals were kept very clean, that patients were well cared for, they were well fed and well clothed, and that medical staff there were comprised of some of the most foremost physicians and surgeons of the day. And all the nursing staff was mainly made up of soldiers' widows, so they had an understanding of the military lifestyle. So we don't know what kind of treatments were offered in the hospitals themselves. But we do know that some of the other therapies that were suggested at this time were quite humane and actually very recognisable to us today. So some of the writers on mental health in this period, they all recognised that external events such as wars could cause problems, but they did believe that these were treatable. And they all recommended Effectively, the same thing, which was to talk to people. So, what we might today call narrative exposure therapy or talking testimony. And essentially, what they meant by this was to share your problems with a friend or someone who could be trusted and seek their counsel and advice. And essentially, their advice was a problem shared is a problem halved. And that certainly seems to have been the prevailing advice. Now, we don't know how far soldiers themselves obviously followed this, but we do know that soldiers continued to meet up in groups. People who'd fought alongside each other continued to meet socially for many years after the war had ended. And we know that they talked about the events of the wars as well, because often they end up in legal records where someone has overheard their conversation and they've taken offence at the fact that, for example, they might still be supportive of the parliamentarian cause after the restoration. So they've reported them to the authorities and they turn up in legal records. So we know that veterans are continuing to meet in groups and they're continuing to talk about the wars long after they've ended. So it's just possible that some of the veterans found these helpful experiences.
1: If the psychological impact of the British Civil War was so important and so widely understood by the people of the time, why is it that we then wait until the reports of shell shock in the First World War before this comes to the fore again?
2: That's a really interesting question. Yes, it seems to get forgotten about in the meantime. So, shell shock seems to take everyone by surprise, and you would think that it was a new phenomenon then. I suppose maybe it's something to do with the fact that the death rates are so comparable. So, estimates suggest that it was a proportion of the population. The death toll in the Civil War was actually greater than the First World War, but in many ways they're quite comparable. So maybe the First World War was the first time after the Civil Wars that people were witnessing a death toll and a casualty rate on a similar scale. It's perhaps to do with the scale and reach of the war. So there wasn't a war of that nature between the Civil Wars and the First World War. And I suppose it's perhaps out of sight and out of mind. If you don't have veterans with psychological issues on such a large scale, people forget that it exists, forget that it's a problem. So we don't know, but that would be my best guess.
1: Is it your impression then that society in general and the authorities were understanding of this situation and reacted accordingly?
5: Yes, certainly
2: in some cases. I mean, I think it's fair to say it's probably a bit of a mixed bag. Um, Certainly when you see, for example, some of the family members, like the wives and the mothers petitioning, they seem to be given quite a sympathetic hearing. And as you can see with some of the treatments in the hospitals and things, again, that was quite forward thinking. But sometimes it depended if a community was struggling themselves, I think, as well. So sometimes some communities say that they can't afford to look after these people. And so they just want them locked up for their safety. We have one example of a community who seemed to be totally unsure as to what to do with a veteran who lived locally, who seems to have been quite disruptive to them. So this was the village of Enville in Staffordshire and the veteran in question was a man named Roger Fellows. In the end, the villagers themselves complained to the authorities about the behaviour of this veteran.
4: To the right worshipful, the Justices of the Peace in the County of Staffordshire in sessions assembled. The said Roger Fellows is a constant breaker of the Sabbath day by bodily labour and travelling about from place to place. That the said Roger Fellows is a common swearer of great and bloody oaths and did the 18th of this instant April, being Easter day, swear by the Lord's flesh he would smoke all the parish except three or four houses for a soldier he had been and a soldier he would be. The premise is considered, it's humbly desired by the inhabitants of Enville, that such a course may be taken with the said Roger Fellows that they may live in peace and quietness without danger of their lives or loss of their estates.
2: Of course, many people today wouldn't think anything of working or travelling on a Sunday and and swearing is commonplace, but at the time of the civil wars not going to church on a Sunday and travelling and working would all be considered quite significant social taboos. And so we see here that Fallows has undergone some sort of significant behavioural transformation. And it's interesting that his troubles have manifested themselves in this way. And it's just a reminder to us to pay attention to the cultural context in which a veteran is operating.
1: Ismini, I know you've had the opportunity to share some of these experiences and these stories with modern day veterans. What's been their response?
2: Yes, I think that some of the stories I've shared with veterans in the present have really resonated with them as well. Not just about their wartime experiences, but what it feels like being disbanded from the army, from coming home, trying to reintegrate back into their communities, their families, people who haven't been away to war themselves. And then, you know, how the problems can sometimes start then and the hoops through which the veterans in the past had to jump through in order to claim a pension perhaps aren't too dissimilar to many of the administrative problems that veterans find today. And the fact that veterans in the past were quite successful in claiming pensions, as I say, is perhaps a bit of disappointment to veterans in the present that they are still struggling to claim the appropriate financial help that they need to live their daily lives when actually this is a problem that started 400 years ago. You'd have thought we'd been better at it by now.
1: Over the last few weeks, I've spent quite a bit of time reading the stories that are captured on your civil war petitions website and they really are fascinating is there one story which you think or one petition or one person who you think encapsulates a lot of the psychological impact of the british civil wars
2: Yes, it's hard to pick one above all the others. I, I suppose perhaps one of my favourite stories, if they are allowed to have a favourite if that doesn't sound too wrong. Was a chap called John Cornelius from the village of Bishop Stainton in Devon, and Cornelius In some ways, he's got quite an extraordinary story. As well as fighting all through the Civil War, and he's been wounded many times and imprisoned, he struggles to live at home once the war's over, particularly during the Commonwealth and the Interregnum. And so he actually goes to live in Barbados for a while. There's a royalist community there in exile, and he lives there during the period of the Interregnum. He then comes back to England after the Restoration and he's in such a bad way that he's been cared for by his parents. But by 1672, it gets to the stage where his parents, they're too elderly, they're too frail, they can no longer afford as well as be physically capable to look after him. At that point, he's forced to petition for a pension. And I think what gets me most is the way that he phrases his physical and mental injuries. The phrase he uses, he says that he's not only decrepit, but he's lost the use of his reason through his grief. And I think that's such a powerful phrase. But I suppose in a good way, he is awarded a pension, so he is given some help, which just shows how advanced the civil wars could be.
1: Izmini, this is a fascinating topic and it's been wonderful talking to you about it where can people learn more
2: so the best place to go to to see all the petitions that i've mentioned in this podcast today is the civil war petitions website and that is available at www.civilwarpetitions.ac.uk
1: ismini thank you so much for your time and for introducing us to so many fascinating stories
0: Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this programme. You can watch a talk by Dr Pell's given at the National Army Museum entitled Trauma and the British Civil Wars by following this link, crowdcast.io forward slash e forward slash trauma bcw or by going to the museum's website, nam.ac.uk. To read more stories of the people who witnessed the conflict and its aftermath, go to the Civil War Petitions Project website, civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. And to learn more about the civil wars, don't miss the National Civil War Centre in Newark, Nottinghamshire, where exhibits and films explore these turbulent years. The centre also offers regular programmes for schools delivered in Newark or online. For more information, visit their website at nationalcivilwarcentre.com. To hear more of our programmes, go to our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk, where you can download previous podcasts and subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, about all things civil war. Our programmes are also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.